Hey there, I'm Kimberly Hayes Muda. And I'm Amanda Day. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to Season 2 of the Fundraising Heyday Podcast. We are a dynamic duo bringing you insight and knowledge into the ever-evolving world of grants, development, and fundraising. Full disclosure. Uh, we love our disclosures. Mm-hmm. We're Southern. That's right. You may hear y'all. Mm-hmm. It happens. Yep. This podcast is brought to you by Season 2 sponsor, D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. Don't let grants stress you out. Their team can help you with grant readiness and training, grant research, grant writing, and grant mock review. Visit their website, www.dhleonardconsulting.com to learn more. Today, we're talking with Lucy Morgan, who you may know as MyFedTrainer. That's right. MyFedTrainer.com is a leading provider of online and in-person grant management training and templates, all led by the lovely and talented Lucy Morgan. She is also a host of a new podcast called Grant Talks, of which I was honored to be a guest earlier this year. Um, And I must say, Lucy, you are talented in many ways, but what I personally am most impressed by are the fabulous infographics that you create to help share the rules and guidelines of federal grant management. Um, You don't know how many times I've referred to the bear claw image that highlights the five procurement methods, Um, but we'll get into that fun topic in a minute. First, what I'd love is to uh, say welcome and ask you to share a little bit more about yourself. Well, thank you so much, both Amanda and Kimberly, for having me on the Fundraising Heyday. Um, I really appreciate this opportunity to share with you about different aspects of grants and grant management. And thank you so much for mentioning those infographics. Uh, I love them. Oh, they're the best. <laughs> you know, they. I think sometimes you read in the, you know, the magazines of doing those little quizzes, what would you do if money was no option? And I just have a blast with those infographics. People ask me, you know, do you have a graphic designer that does that? I'm like, no, I want to do those myself. They're so much fun. Um, sometimes I have to tear myself away and go, okay, now I have to do the not as much fun stuff like writing articles and things like that. (laughs) I I actually come from a family where um, the women in my family, I have two sisters and my mom are all artists. And But all the men in my family, my dad and my brothers, are all very analytical types. And I've always taken after that analytical side. And so I just always thought, well, I'm really not very artistic or creative. And when you're an accountant, right, you go to accounting school and they they really frown upon that uh, being, uh, you know, creative because no one wants a creative accountant. So I really, I, I, so I'm starting to realize maybe I just had really tough competition growing up in a house with artists. Um, but I really am enjoying the creative aspects of having my fed trainer and just thinking about is it how different ways to reach people besides just the, you know, blah, 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 or read the regulations <laughs> and, and bring a visual aspect and an audio aspect with the with the new grant talks podcast to make learning more accessible to people i think that was really what started me down the infographic path Um, so i'm glad that you are enjoying them i was thinking this morning geez i haven't um refreshed that poster that bear club 
bear claw poster for a while. So I just did that out on our uh, myfedtrainer.com blog. So if anyone else would like a copy of the poster, um, feel free to download and share that one as well. I just want to um, make sure everyone understands that it's a really cool graphic, but it has nothing to do with the giant pastry. <laughs> so I, I just put that putting that out there in case people are getting all excited about free, <laughs> free pastry coupon. No, but it's an awesome graphic. And if you follow it, chances are it could help you stay out of jail. There you go. And it's been it's been widely shared. I imagine my surprise one day I was out at a conference for the AICPA and um the the presenter, another CPA, was doing a great presentation about the procurement rules. And up pops on the screen this wonderful graphic that she described <laughs> from OMB, the Office of Management and Budget. And I was like, hey, that, that's, I did that. Wait a that's minute. Not that but I didn't, of course, didn't interrupt her. But I got a cool little picture of me. Uh, hey, this is not OMB. This was, this was one of our graphics at MyFed Trainer. Wow. So. Yeah, that oh. was that was exciting to me. It's like, wow, people think OMB. I don't think OMB is quite this creative somehow. I could be wrong, but mm, yeah, I I would support your hypothesis, and we need <laughs> we need we need further testing on that. I think. Yeah, but, but um, no so, pastries, no pastries. We're not no, talking. No, sorry, about. no pastries, but but really good stuff, nevertheless. So you had mentioned uh, when you had your bear claw revelation with the office of OMB that uh, it was all about procurement and that. I, that's one of the things that we really wanted to focus on today uh, for folks is procurement, which is all about how you buy stuff with grant funds, stuff, yeah. how you set up your contracts and many other things, including whether or not what you have in place could be a conflict of interest. And so many organizations seem to overlook procurement rules when there's grant funding involved. Many times I would say it's unintentional. Sometimes it is intentional, but whether your intentions are there or not, it's still you're in non-compliance. So why do you think people just have a hard time understanding the procurement rules and conflict of interest in federal grant management? Well, I think, first of all, you have to recognize that if you feel like procurement is kind of complicated with federal grants, you're not alone. And when the uniform guidance came out in uh, 2000, the end of 2013 with that one-year implementation period, they kept mm -hmm. extending the grace period for procurement. So really procurement wasn't held to, their feet weren't held to the fire quite as fast as the rest of the organization. So I think that is contributed to this feeling of like, well, maybe they'll change their mind and not really care. Um, so <laughs> I, I think that that didn't really hit. There was a, you know, people, part of human nature is we wait until we have to worry about stuff sometimes. Um, and, and I think that's what happened with procurement is they're kind of like, well, I don't have to worry about that. I'll worry about this other stuff or I'm too busy. I don't have to worry about it. But I think underlying all this is really the fact that people resist change. And the procurement requirements are a combination of two things. One is some very different concepts about procurement than what they've had in the past. And the second part is enforcement of rules that have been on the books since forever, you know, since the <laughs> 80s when they last rewrote the regulations. You know, I had these giant windshield glasses on my face back in the <laughs> 80s. That's how long they've had these regulations in place. And so people have gotten very used to in the last, you know, roughly 30, almost 40 years of going, well, that didn't matter. That doesn't matter. Why do I have to care about that? Because nobody's ever asked about that. Even written procurement procedures, that's not a new requirement. It's just now 40 years later, the 
federal government's finally going, hey, hey, where are those uh, those procurement procedure things that uh, you're supposed to have? And you go, what? Is that a new requirement? No, it's not new. It's just nobody cared before. So I think it's that that's really developed a culture of, you know, we'll worry about the things that people ding us on, but we're not going to really pay attention to procurement in a more holistic and comprehensive mm. um, aspect. So I think that's that's really what it is. We just have gotten in this, we've gotten a little bit lazy in this business as usual mm-hmm. uh, type of mindset with procurement that, yeah, you know, no, you know, we, we just keep doing the same thing, same old, same old, it's all okay. Nobody ex- has any higher expectations of us. And I think that that's a false premise, um, especially as we're seeing how things are developing and some pretty expensive cost disallowances are happening centering around procurement. And I don't mean little teeny tiny ones. I mean like millions of dollars of cost disallowed for what seem to be kind of uh, red tapey administrative types of issues. So just to get all our definitions out there and also... I had to struggle in and out of my parachute pants from the 1980s um, <laughs> as you were talking about that. Um, so I'm sorry. I'm back now. You can't touch this? Can't oh, touch this? No. Well, well that's, 90s, that's 90s. No, there were, there were paper parachute pants and lots of rubber necklaces and, uh, and lots of thrift store clothes that a friend of mine used to wear. A friend. <laughs> I, I lived in Germany in the early 80s, so I missed out on a lot of oh. things. Well, it was I had a, a lot of cool things. It was a, it, anyway. good times, yeah. but bad fashion, although <laughs> interesting fashion. So could you please define uh, for our listeners what you mean by cost disallowances? Sure. So when you get money from a federal grant and we all go, yay, it's raining money. It's all this free money. It's coming down. And first of all, don't think it's free money because it really isn't. But you spend it. And this is how it used to work before the uniform guidance. You spend it. And then the federal agency or the auditors come in and they go, oh, you did it all wrong. Now you have to give it all back. And that is the worst possible outcome you can have with your grant for Mm -hmm. for a couple of reasons. One is what they do first is they question costs. In other words, what's that for? And that's what's called a question cost. And then you have a little bit of time to go, oh, oh, wait, wait a minute. We have the receipt. We can document. We documented that this is okay. And then if they are not satisfied with your explanation, then it can be disallowed. And what that means is you have to pay it back. And mm-hmm. here's here's why that's such a double whammy. When you have costs disallowed for your federal spending, you can't repay those with from another federal source. So let's say that you're a local community and you're trying to work through an issue like you had a, tur- a hurricane or you had a flood or a tornado or whatever it is, and you get the money and you spend the money um, and then part of those costs are disallowed, you've got to go find some other way to pay that back. And typically that's going to come from some other program that wasn't federally sponsored where you were mm-hmm. supposed to help somebody else. So now, first of all, you don't help the people you should have helped with the federal grant, and you're taking money away from some other folks that should have been helped with that budget. So it's the worst possible scenario to have to repay any costs, and it's becoming more and more frequent, and I'm seeing larger and larger dollar amounts. So I'd never want anyone to have, go through that experience. That's kind of one of my personal goals with grant management training is that nobody has any costs disallowed. Yeah, fair enough. Well, and I, you know, going back to the original question about why people don't follow procurement, I would often hear from program people, you know, they, they'd say they'd go and buy something and I'd be like, hey, you realize we should have gotten three quotes for this. Where's your other quotes? And more often than not, I'd hear, well, this is a grant. 
And I'm like, yeah, it is a grant. And they're like, but in grants are special. I don't have to follow procurement like I normally do. So yeah. it, uh, that always amazed me that people thought that grants were the special pool of money where the normal rules don't apply. So, uh, do, you know, educating your office that, yes, grants are very special. They're so special that you still have to follow your own procurement and make sure you're not violating any federal rules as well. So. It's and if you could see my head right now, Amanda, I would look like the Lucy bobblehead doll because <laughs> oh. I'm just like shaking my head, shaking my head. Yeah, yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. There's, there's a little bit of denial going on there, uh, particularly from procurement departments. Yep. So let's talk about that then. So the Office of Management and Budget and all in it, inside its uniform guidance, they very clearly state that all non-federal entities. So unless you happen to work for the federal government, that's everybody. Um, you have to have your own written procurement policies and procedures that at a minimum conform to federal procurement rules. So, um, and of course, your own rules can always be more strict. Um, so we, I mentioned the great bear claw infographic um, that talks about the five procurement options. So let's spell out what those are for people if they've never heard of what they are. Okay, sure. And, you know, again, if you'd like to get a copy of that same poster that Amanda has, it's out on uh, the MyFedTrainer.com blog. Um, and here's the thing. I'm going to walk through the five methods, and then some of you are going to go look in the uniform guidance, and you're going to go, wait a minute, that's not what she just said. So one of the things that's been really interesting in this uh, journey of the uniform guidance is there's things that are happening and rules that are being updated and they are, have not yet updated the actual language in the uniform guidance. And you go, okay, how are we supposed to stay on top of all this stuff? So these are why communication tools, you know, like the Fundraising Heyday uh, podcast and Grant Talks podcast and being on LinkedIn and social media and stuff, people are talking about this outside of just the regulation. And that's, I've found to be very valuable um, to just stay up on it. You know, sometimes mm -hmm. I didn't realize until about a week ago that uh, when the new um, audit requirements came out in the 2019 mm -hmm. compliance supplements that a bunch of CPAs over at AICPA were not really happy and there's a bunch of mistakes and they sent kind of a nasty gram over to Gil Tran at OMB. And I would never have known that if I hadn't been connected on social media and stuff where people are starting to chat about some of those topics. You know, you, so don't, you don't want a bunch of accountants to get super angry. Either because <laughs> Ooh, yeah. They got, you know, it's a, it's a quiet, there are quiet people. I would probably number you among them as a recovering introvert. But when y'all get riled up about it, <laughs> then you've got all these rules and regs and policies ma mainly memorized and, you know, formidable foes. So. Yeah, it's it's not a pretty picture, definitely <laughs> not. So I'm going to give you what the current amounts are as of right now and in 2019, mm -hmm. and and a little bit about the five concepts. So the first one is called a micro purchase, and that is defined to be the easy peasy way to buy stuff uh, where the cost does not exceed ten thousand dollars. If you look in the uniform guidance, it says three thousand dollars, but ten thousand dollars is actually the correct number. Unless, and that's always the bugaboo with grant regulations, if you're talking Davis-Bacon, then that threshold is $2,000. The second method is called the small purchase. And this, again, is designed to be a relatively simple way to do procurement without tons and tons and tons of documentation. Notice I didn't say no documentation, but not <laughs> Noted. tons and tons. And that goes up to 250000 
And then once you get over $250,000, then you're starting to look at a much more formal process because as you spend more, they want more documentation. And you typically go one of two routes. One is a sealed bid, and that's typically used for construction projects. It's a very formal process. All the bids come into a room, and there's certain people in the room, and they open the envelopes or whatever. Um, and then a competitive proposal, which is what probably a lot of us are familiar with on some of those larger procurements. And again, that's over two hundred. And then there's the fifth method, and that's the one that gets everybody into trouble, and that's called a sole source. A sole source, by its very definition, is a non-competitive procurement. In other words, you aren't following the competition rules in the uniform guidance. And there's some very good reasons why you might do that. In the past, you just had to be kind of a creative writer and you could write a pretty darn good reason why, and you could get a sole source approved. True story. Yeah, uh, and and not anymore. Now they have a very narrow list of the reasons why sole source will be approved, and if you do not fit into that list, uh, you're you're out of luck. It has to meet those criteria. And so I think in many ways that has been a great uh, feature in the concept of procurement methods to really lay out what are the rules. In the past, if you weren't a creative writer, you probably wouldn't get a sole source approved. So it was a lot more subjective. And I appreciate that I know, okay, these are the criteria. And so I want to make sure that we're asking for something that has a high likelihood of getting approved. I think it was Jonna Rogers that said that she always called sole sources unicorns because she never <laughs> actually saw saw one get approved. But I, I saw plenty of them get approved it, it was just more of a creative writing exercise so <laughs> so that's that's one that that has changed so those are the five methods now a lot of times um people say "Ooh, that those are too high we don't like that or even oh those are too low and when the the regulations first came out when three thousand was the, the micro purchase a lot of universities went that's too low it needs to be twenty thousand dollars and i saw a lot of uh, local communities going "Ooh, three thousand that people go crazy with that we need it <laughs> to be fifteen hundred so there's a broad range of of how people felt about that um but i think that most of the universities have accepted the ten thousand dollar as being a pretty good number um local communities and some smaller governments and non still are pretty uncomfortable with people just going out and buying 10,000. And I'm going to, I just want to mention one thing about that 10,000. It does not say that you can spend $10,000 up to 10,000 on whatever you want. It just says it has to be reasonable. And so what changes in your documentation mindset around a micro purchase is not documenting that you got quotes, but it's documenting that that is a reasonable price in the marketplace. So it still requires documentation. It's just a different approach to documentation with those micro purchases. Oh, that's a very, very good point. Um, because you don't want someone saying, well, it's $10,000 for this Chromebook, but I don't, it's fine because it's within that uh, limit when Chromebooks might retail for one or $200. Although not the best example because Chromebooks would be now considered supplies and not equipment, but still. Yeah. 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 So for these organizations that are like, whoa, now, no, 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 $10,000, that is way too high, which most of the organizations where I worked as in nonprofit health and human services would say that and are saying that today. If it, So if these organizations are worried that their policies aren't as strict or not exactly what they need to be, what suggestions do you have for them to sort of 
rectify what's going on? Sure. Um, so the first thing, the first general rule is you can always be more restrictive than the federal government. That's okay. And in fact, the states, they get uh, a special provision in the uniform guidance that says, you follow your own state rules. That's okay. You don't, you know, there's a lot of things you don't have to conform to as a state. And the reason behind that, kind of the story behind this story, is states tend to be more conservative than the federal agencies. Mm -hmm. And so if you as a nonprofit or a local government, you want the micro purchase to be, you know, $500 or whatever, that's okay. It just needs to be documented in those written procurement procedures, what those methods are and what the thresholds you are. So you can always be more conservative. Than that's okay, but then you have to follow your process. Mm -hmm. And I, I, one of the things I wanted to mention, you know, people are going, oh my goodness, now we have to have all this stuff in writing. We never did before. Um, what do we, what should we do? How do we even approach that? Um, is first of all, just don't ignore the requirements. That part of the regulations has been around, as I said, you know, I had those giant windshield glasses, um, <laughs> I actually was going through some pictures. I'm getting ready to put a lot of family photos, uh, digitalize them. And I had my granddaughter helping me sort through them. And she's looking at these pictures oh. from the 80s. <laughs> oh, she was having a lot of fun. At least I don't have any, uh, you know, fo no photo evidence of big hair pictures. But I do have the, the oh. eyeglasses. <laughs> yeah, the rubber eyeglass frames and the different neon colors and... Yeah. yeah, but please, please do go ahead. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it was not a great fashion era. Uh, uh, so first of all, don't don't ignore the requirements. You know, if you feel like you're pretty comfortable with what the regulations say and you want to just go ahead and update what you have or more be, maybe formalize what you have, I think that's a good approach. Um, and for those of you listening in, the the parts that uh, apply to procurement are in uh, 2 CFR, that just stands for the Code of Federal Regulations, 200.317 to 326. So that's the part of the regulations that are procurement. But you have to actually look at some other sections too, and a few I want to highlight real quickly. One is the section 200.330 to 332, which is all about subrecipients. Now, subrecipients is not the same thing as procurement, but when you start a relationship with a contractor or a subrecipient, one of the very first steps is to figure out are they a contractor? Is this a procurement transaction or is it a subrecipient in a subaward? And that really starts the whole process. And a lot of times procurement's involved in some of those decisions. And that really trips people. I think we can have a whole episode about what's the difference between a subrecipient oh. and a contractor because that trips people out a lot. It's it, and it's, yeah, and it's, uh, there's a lot of gray. So I think that would be a wonderful topic. And then of course, procurement is generating records. So what do you do with those records? So they want to involve them in some of the record retention discussions and things like that too. If you're going, oh my goodness, we have nothing. We don't even know where to start. Um, I'm going to suggest an article that I wrote a while back called How to Create Written Procurement Procedures from Scratch. So if you just go out to the, the our blog on myfedtrainer.com and search on Scratch, you're going to uh, gonna find that article. And it lays out exactly how I would put together a set of procurement procedures um, and what areas I'd want to make sure I covered, including conflict of interest. I want to make sure that's somewhere. Um, and some of these other types of issues. 
And then if you're going, you know, I'm not a DIY type of person. I really don't want to start this from scratch. I'm a really good editor, but I don't really want to start from scratch. Um, we actually have created a template, a Word document that is, I think, everything that needs to be in a good set of procedures for uh, procurement. And that is, we sell that out in our template section on myfedtrainer.com. So that kind of three levels of approaching, depending on how much of a DIY person you are versus let's just get it in, get it done and get to go enjoy the weekend and not be writing procurement procedures all weekend. Well, so I'm forever telling people, I'm like, there's no sense in recreating the will. There are tons of organizations, probably several similar to the type of organization you are that already has good procurement policies. So there's no, no harm in asking, Hey, can I see what your policies say? And then you can tweak them if need be to fit you, your needs. But yeah, you don't need to start from scratch to build something these days. Yeah, around absolutely. Yeah. So, well, we've mentioned um, this a little bit already. I told you know my story about how often people are like, "Hey, it's a grant. I don't, I don't have to follow procurement." Um, and I don't know whether it's you know folks either don't know the rules, they don't understand them, or if they really just don't care. Because often I hear people say, "Well, you know, they think it's free money. They think, hey, it's my money. I can do whatever I want." Which we all know that's. So not true. Not true. Um, so when you have you faced similar situations where you've had to educate people um, within your own organization about, hey, you're doing this wrong. And if so, how have you handled that? And it's it's interesting you bring that up. I was just uh, presenting down in Tampa yesterday. And one of the things I shared is the number one question that I get when I go out and do presentations or training, and they all center around something like, how do I get fill in the blank to do something, fill in the <laughs> blank what that is? Yes. How, how do I get finance to work with the program <laughs> folks? How do I get the program folks to work with finance? How do I get the senior leadership to pay attention and not be buying stuff that we I know they can't be buying? Um it's, you know, how do I get procurement to follow the rules? They're not doing it right. All these types yeah. of things. It really all centers around how do I get someone to do something because I know that they're not doing it what I think is correctly. Um, and I think the the couple of things, suggestions that I had when I was talking yesterday with this group in Tampa that I, I, I think are really what you have to keep in mind is, first of all, there's no department to department uh, it's really people to people. So you have to focus on building relationships with people. And I mean, get out of the, you know, if you're an accountant, get out of the office, go see the program folks, <laughs> yes. bring, bring bear claws, <laughs> bring That's donuts. Right. I don't know. That's right. <laughs> Can bring, you get accountants out of the office? And if so, is, is bear claws the trick? We could do it. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I would say donuts, but you know, if you want to up okay. your game, I think bear okay. claws, bear claws would definitely be good. And actually, it, Lucy, I would say that Amanda makes a really mean pie, different all kinds of pies. So Amanda, <laughs> you can have a whole different side gig here. I know pies, oh, pie enticement for accounting, pie for grant sustainability <laughs> and grant get alongness. I like it. Oh, and <laughs> I have to tell you, my family loves pie. My aunt, my aunt on my mom's side used to say, "You can put anything in a pie crust, and your family would eat." It. <laughs> she, was, she was just about right. We love pie. We'd have birthday pies. You know, it's oh, not birthday yeah. cake. We want birthday pies. So think about, okay, how do we build relationships with people? Well, and a couple of things, not just that we're all having that kumbaya moment, but people who we want to get on board with some stuff, or maybe we need some help with things. Um, 
So first of all, build relationships and food bribes. I hate to say it, but are, are an effective way to build relationships. People center around food. If you're looking for, geez, how do we get senior leadership involved, which is, I think, almost a bigger challenge in many ways than um, kind of the line folks working on the projects uh, is uh, senior leadership can be a little disengaged. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes that takes a little bit of a, both a carrot and a stick. So the, you know, the carrot <laughs> might be bringing those donuts. The stick is if you go out on Google and you start researching just by searching the OIG office of inspector general um, audit findings for procurement, you're going to find a wealth of real life examples where costs were disallowed that, you know, I use them in case studies, but they're, they also have a lot of shock value. Uh, you were mentioning, uh, I think, a little bit off air, just talking about some of the popularities of different um, podcasts that are about crimes that take place. You could almost have a, a podcast from the Office of Inspector General on on fraud with grants. You know, it would be pretty fascinating. But we actually have a, an episode this season called Rip from the Headlines, where we have talked about some of these stories. Yeah. So they are good learning tools. And some of yeah. them are really incredible. You're like, yes. they did what? And they got away with <laughs> oh. what? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty amazing. It really, it truly is. So on that senior leadership, I want to make sure that not only that, you know, I'm finding at least one champion, maybe everybody in senior leadership is disengaged, but you have that one person who is a little bit more open to the concept of what risk we are incurring by not doing this correctly and what that could mean. And maybe that's the person that you start doing some, I don't know if I want to call it education, but just, hey, you know, I just read this on Google. Look at, you know, that kind of <laughs> friendly water cooling, water cooler type sharing. I um, love it. Yeah. And then the other side of the spectrum is that the the people that just dig in their heels, you know, if you could see me, I've got my arms crossed. I'm like, yeah, we don't have to do that. And you need to also bring in uh, some of those folks on board, too. And so one of the things to do, you know, an approach I've used in the past in my career with those naysayers is to find maybe even the most vocal one and really communicate with them, sit down, take them to lunch or whatever, um, find out what are their concerns. Are they concerned that they may do it right, but then upper leadership will override them? Are they concerned that um, we never had to do it that way before or that they don't have enough staffing? It really get kind of probe about what are the issues and then address some of their concerns so that you're going to find them a lot more willing to come on board if they feel that you're genuine in wanting to help them. So that, those would be my two advice. I think if you can get kind of the leadership side and the big nays- naysayer on board, mm-hmm. most people will follow along with the tide. Well, speaking of following along with the tide, I don't know if that's a really great transition, but I'm going to go with it anyway, (laughs) because the the tide of influence, and that brings me to conflict of interest, which is a very important part of the procurement process, or just a great way for sound business practices to, uh, to, to be made. I think for a lot of folks, conflict of interest is fairly straightforward, to think of if you were um, running a nonprofit agency that needed to build a new building, after school program, senior care, whatever, and you, there were maybe federal monies that were available to do that. But then your your spouse, your husband, your wife actually owned a construction company and were bidding on that same project. I think that's a pretty clear cut for most people um, sign of conflict of interest. 
but I'm, it's a lot more nuanced than that. And I'm hoping that you could take us through what types of issues an organization might need to consider and include within their own conflict of interest policy. Okay. That's a, and that's a great question. Um, because again, I think people, there's a lot of uncertainty about conflicts of interest and what they are and what do we do about them and all that type of stuff. We've heard the term flapped around a lot, but I don't mm-hmm. think people have a really clear understanding. So um, first of all, uh, what does it mean in terms of federal grants? Well, what happened with the uniform guidance is they put in a requirement that you have a conflict of interest policy in writing. So that's the first step. Make sure you have one in writing. Make sure it has the certain elements that are included. And what you might not realize is that requirement comes out of procurement, not out of any kind of general financial management. Mm-hmm. And the reality when it comes to conflicts of interest in a code of conduct or standards of conduct is most of the time that lives in your employee handbook, not in any kind of procurement uh, regulations. True. So, so I find most people, when they go to work at an organization, there is a conflict of interest policy or a standards of conduct typically in the employee handbook that maybe they sign that very first day when they start saying, yep, um, I I understand this, but it's a little bit like that software agreement. You just check the box, you know, and nobody ever reads it. Mm -hmm. I think think that also happens with uh, code of conduct or or your ethical code or standards of conduct or whatever you want to call it. Um, Little grant trivia about code of conduct is that prior to the uniform guidance, some federal agencies didn't have a code of conduct. I now, am shocked. <laughs> uh, I, I like to think probably GSA was one, but, you know, I don't know of that for sure. But I just I love all those videos about those extravagant conferences in uh, Vegas from the GSA. The clown uh, conference scandal. It, yes. I love that. I hate that and, story, but I love it. <laughs> and the mind reader and then seeing the head of GSA on Facebook in his, the hot tub with the, the champagne that, nice. you know, that's with no shirt. And I, I never will be able to unsee that. <laughs> In fact, just this morning, I was reading another scandal story about GSA, and they they brought up that picture from Facebook, and I was like, "Oh no!" no. I, well, I, and the The worst thing is, if you don't know GSA, that's the General Services Administration. So that's the group that sets what is fair prices to pay for things. So if you have if you get paid per, per diem for travel for your meals, you can go on the GSA website and say, "Hey, I'm going to Dallas." And they say, you know, they should per diem is this much per day, right? Right. And a lot of travel, you know, mileage on your car, all kinds of things. So they're supposed to set what is the most fair and equitable rate of things, and here they are not withholding their own rules and regulations. Well, no, Amanda, and maybe there was a hot tub per diem that we didn't know about. <laughs> I've been missing on, out on that for like 20 years and I need my hot tub per diem. For public health reasons, I'm like, I'm really not interested in hot tubs that I'm yeah. not real. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's just, okay. it's bad enough for anybody. But I just thought, yeah. I mean, when you're supposed to be the the standard, yeah. it just, it's, it's a baller. That was a do as I say, not yeah, as I do. Just, yeah, definitely. Oh. And then there's incidentals and then there's some big incidentals when it came yeah. to that. Yeah, <laughs> clearly. Oh, okay, so so not not to put that burn that image burning in everyone's <laughs> retinas right now. But as we're all Googling GSA, <laughs> yeah, no yes, party in the GSA, <laughs> party at the GSA. Um, that's what you Google. Lucy, Go to YouTube. They, they pick videos of it. I use them in classes all the time. There's videos out there. Okay. You know, Lucy, I'm going to think of you as Miley Cyrus now here. It's like party, party, in party in the USA. Party in the GSA hot tub. Oh, Lord. 
Yeah, it's I, I tell, you know, one of the tips I always share with with my classes is if you're going to do this stuff that, you know, you shouldn't be doing just a tip. Don't put it on YouTube because I might <laughs> use it in the future <laughs> to, to use that to illustrate a point of what not to do with federal funding. Absolutely. Yeah. So, OK, so most like I said, I'm finding when I pull classes and things like that, most people have some kind of a standards of conduct. Yes, there's some specific items. Make sure that you're following. Uh, you make sure those are included. But the bigger problem with conflicts of interest, I think, is a is from the standpoint of your process and your training. Mm -hmm. A lot of organizations, they either they only make people aware of that when they first start. So you sign the little document when you first start, and then they never talk about it again. Or uh, between Christmas and New Year's, HR is running around like mad to get everybody <laughs> to sign the new form. But again, they're not really telling people, they're not giving people tools to know what what does this really mean? So a conflict of interest just means that you're making a decision based on what's best for you and not for the organization or for the federal award. So you're the first thing in your mind is how can I personally benefit from this? And there's two types of conflicts of interest. There's one that's called a conflict in appearance, and that means something looks bad. And then there's a conflict in fact, and that means something is bad. So everything starts looking bad, but not everything is bad. And so what I my advice is really center around training people what things look bad. You know, if the gums are flapping about, hey, wasn't isn't that so-and-so's uh, partner that just got that job? Or isn't that your kid's company or things like that? Anything that gets people talking, that's probably a conflict in appearance. But what is the process between the appearance and the fact to, and I'm going to use a term that's probably too strong in many cases, investigate whether it is a conflict in fact or not. So you have to have some process that says, okay, I'm worried about this. Is it a problem? Yes or no? And so that's the piece that I think gets missed a lot is what do we do between those two? And then I see a lot of policies that are put together. If you're concerned about this, talk to your supervisor. Well, that is fine, but what if your supervisor is a person that you think might have the conflict of interest? That's going to be kind of an awkward conversation. Just a little bit. Yeah. So, so the the Association of, of Certified Fraud Examiners did a study, and they said, how are frauds caught? And the number one way frauds are caught are tips. And so you want to have a very robust process and a good communication that people feel comfortable saying, hey, I think this isn't on the up and up. That's how you catch things like this. But don't limit that to you can only talk to your supervisor. You can only talk to HR. Make that policy as broad as possible so people can talk to a board member or make it anonymous or uh, do an email or a text or call a hotline with a phone or all those things and make also ability for people to report things they're concerned about, especially with federal spending um, from the community. You know, I did a, a case study on a TANF, which is a, a aid for needy families, mm -hmm. where the director had embezzled about $300,000. And what she had folks, she had convinced folks that were recipients of these benefits that they were should get a little bit too much and then give some of that money back to her in cash. Well, people are going, taking those checks and cashing them somewhere. What if that store where people are constantly coming in and getting cash and then they might be saying, oh, yeah, I have to give it back to the TANF director. Oh. You know, someone might be going, hey, this isn't quite right. And is there a mechanism, not just through the conflict of interest policy, but in a robust whistleblower type of situation for community members to go, you know, some, something's not right here. 
that's how we detect frauds. That's the number one way frauds are detected. And the more of those that we can, you know, nip in the bud before they go on for five years, the more confidence the public has in how funds are spent when it comes to federal spending. Yeah. Well, and I think it's important to know, too, a lot of people, when they think about conflict of interest, they think about it on the procurement side and the grant management side of things. But it's also important to understand that it's through all aspects Mm -hmm. of federal processes and grant funding. And a good example I can tell you on the front end, I used to have this contractor would call me all the time when I worked for a previous city. And when they would say, hey, did you know that such and such grant will allow you to buy radios for your police and fire departments? And we sell those radios. So Mm -hmm. tell you what, we'll write the grant for you for free. And then when you get the grant, you just buy our product. So it's a win-win for everybody. What could possibly go wrong? So (laughs) I know that's not a win-win, but can you want to explain to our listeners why that's against conflict of interest? Right. And I'm going to actually, um, I'm really glad you brought that up because this is an area that's been evolving. This is a part of the regulations. It actually is covered under what are called non-competitive practices. Um, this has been around since the 80s. And there's for the long, longest time, there's been this part of the regulations that said, if you write the specifications Let's say the air conditioning unit goes out on the roof and and you're going to write the specifications because no one here at our organization knows what you need for you know heating and air conditioning. Um, you can't also get the work. Okay, so that's been around for a while. Probably most people at least uh, might have heard about that or something. They're familiar with that. What's evolving is the interpretation of that section on non-competitive practices. So let me give you a couple of examples that I did uh, some case studies on um, in the not uh, not too distant past. One was a fire hose manufacturer. So they made fire hoses for uh, uh, communities. And they were doing similar to what you said. They were going and saying, hey, there's these grants for you to get a brand new fire truck. So it wasn't even the police radio type of thing. It was a a little bit more indirect than that. We'll help you write this grant uh, to get this free fire truck. And win-win, you know, we're not selling you anything. We're not selling you fire trucks. We're just going to help you get the grant. And um, increasingly, uh, federal agencies are going, that is a non-competitive practice because if you get that fire truck for free, that means there's more money in your community's budget to buy fire hoses. And so they are ah. going to see a benefit, right? So there's, yeah. it's not a direct one-for-one type of thing, but it is something that's considered a non-competitive practices. So no, what I tell folks is, you know, what my mom used to tell me, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Anyone <laughs> who is offering to write you a grant for free they probably hope to get something out of it. They're, it's not just through the, you know, the goodness of their heart that they're doing that. So, again, I would say if someone helps you write that grant, like uh, someone selling something on the procurement side, mm-hmm. you probably can't use them as a contractor in the future. And I say contractor, you know, that's we used to all say vendors, but the new new terminology is contractors. Um, so that's not okay. And then since we're all working in grants, we all feel, hey, we're special. You know, we know about that and we would advise our clients not to do that. What's happening with grant consultants and grant writers is this, uh, again, this definition, this this non-competitive practices concept that's been around for a long time is broadening out even past contractors uh, and vendors to encircle grant consultants and grant writers. So I had been hearing about this for a while. I'd been 
kind of coaching people to say, you know, this is going to get this up on your radar screen. This is going to be a problem because the interpretation is now starting to be increasingly if you help write an application as a grant consultant or a grant writer, you can't also work post-award. So I was, I'd been, people are going, wait a minute, that's the biggest part of my business. And for those of you out listening who are accountants, you might remember back in the day when a lot of accounting firms were both auditing and consulting. And that was eventually kind of nailed down because there was a kind of an inherent conflict of interest in that, that maybe you're giving people a little bit of a pass on some of the audit side because they're big consulting clients. So the same thing is evolving with grant writers and consultants that if you work pre-award where you're helping design that application, you might be able to write in yourself as a post-award evaluator or something like that that has a financial incentive to you. And it wasn't until just about a month ago that I actually got my hands on an HHS agreement with a client. And what that said in there, I finally got some language around this. So I had been hearing about it kind of third hand and stuff. The language in that agreement said that if you prepare or participate in the application of a grant, you cannot be a contractor on the grant. And so that where, you know, where did that come from? That came from this this area of non-competitive practices that said, if you help us write the specs, you can't do the work. So it's an evolving, uh, this kind of a hot topic evolving subject, but that's where that came out of. And now it's starting to not only uh, affect people selling police radios and fire hoses, but also people who are grant consultants and grant writers as well. Yeah, you, Kimberly and I both set up, we're like, that's us. We never thought about that aspect. We never thought aspect. of it that way, but we sure will now. Yes. Yeah, it, it never has been enforced that way until relatively recently, but this is a, this is a hot topic that I think is people are going to be very surprised as more and more agencies adopt that, that view. Yep. Well, um, on that, that, on that, that fun note, (laughs) (laughs) um, I know procurement, not the most sexy topic, but fascinating stuff that we learned something new, which actually the more you read about it, the more fascinating it is. And, um, we did, Google GSA guy in hot tub and I am <laughs> legally blind now. Yeah. So thanks for that. Anyway, well, yeah. never get that out of your head. I never. can't see it. Oh, well, thank you so much for joining yeah. us today, Lucy. I know our listening audience would love to hear more from you, whether through your podcast, Grant Talks, which we highly encourage you yep. guys to check out, um, or through some of your MyFedTrainer.com offerings. So any other place folks can find you? Sure. I'm on LinkedIn almost all the time. Um, the easiest way to find me on LinkedIn is to type in Lucy Morgan CPA. Uh, just Lucy Morgan, you're going to get like a romance writer and a- uh, an author with uh, the Tampa Bay Tribune, things like that. So Lucy Morgan <laughs> CPA. Uh, every Friday on LinkedIn and, and uh, Twitter and other resources, I use the hashtag Grant Info Friday. And with that, I some of those infographics we're talking about, we have stuff out there every Friday under that. Um, you can also email me at lmorgan at my, M-Y, fed, F-E-D, trainer, T-R-A-I-N-E-R dot com. Uh, just launched the Grant Talks podcast and got to interview Amanda, which was a Yay. load of fun. Uh, so that's another place. Uh, and then actually 
actually, I've got a little sneak peek of something that we just launched this last week, which is a community on Facebook for grant folks called the Grants U, like university, uh, nice. Grants U community on Facebook. So um, we're looking to create a place on Facebook where we can share, support each other, and really help each other be more confident with this this beautiful mess that we work in called <laughs> grant funding. Absolutely. I love that. That's awesome. I'll, I'll be checking it Absolutely. out. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Lucy, thanks again. As always, every time I listen to you, read something, or just admire that fine bear claw infographic, <laughs> I always learn something new. So thank you so much for sharing your insight and knowledge with the listeners of Fundraising Heyday. Thank you. Thank you again to our Season 2 sponsor, D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. We appreciate their support in making grants less stressful. Visit their website, www.dhleonardconsulting.com, to learn more. Remember, there is no specific college degree in grant writing or fundraising, but there are a lot of good people with experience to share, training programs, and other ways to learn. We would love for this podcast to be one of your favorite ways to learn. All you have to do is subscribe and tell a friend. Tell a stranger. Tell a loved one. Tell somebody. Tell please. somebody, y'all. Come on. <laughs> Let us know what you would like to learn more about. You can visit our website at www.fundraisingheyday.com. That's H-A-Y-D-A-Y, fundraisingheyday.com. And also, we are on Twitter, at fundingheyday, H-A-Y-D-A-Y. So don't be a stranger, y'all. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes this season, including next week's topic, the fundraising heyday top 10. What? What? Yeah, we're talking about our most recent favorite learning experiences. You got that right. Basically, it's an Oprah favorite thing kind of day. You get a grant. And you you get get a grant. grant. And you get a grant. Wouldn't that be so cool to do that? Anyway. Yeah, it's not happening, but tune in anyway. (laughs) Talk to y'all later. Bye. Thank you.